Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is Emily Fletcher. She is the founder of Ziva Meditation and the creator of the Ziva Meditation process. This meditation is the most effective one I've come across and will help you manifest in the best way possible. She tells you everything you need to know from a scientific basis on the power of meditation. I personally learned so much from it. Please enjoy. Thank you so much. Emily, I'm going to start on the topic of manifestation. I've been thinking about recently this common shadow in it, and I want to see what your thought was on it, that there's some level of spiritual bypassing in the manifestation process that I only want to be where my desire is, right? Let's say I want to be a millionaire. Some, some of the thoughts I've seen in people in the space are like, I can only, only think like a millionaire, only be in that space. Then they're bypassing the, the experience of the, the present moment. They're bypassing the wounding that has to be released in the present moment to get there. How can we manifest and avoid that shadow of, of really fully being here in the now and not kind of time traveling there all the time and not understand our current reality? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, baked into manifestation is a desire to control. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it's like if, you, if you're going to the gym and lifting weights, there's a desire to get stronger. Mm-hmm. So you have to acknowledge that that is, that's the sport I'm playing. Mm-hmm. And so inherent is that it, in that is going to be perhaps, like you said, the shadow side of, am I bypassing what is, am I not savoring what is now? So the way that I teach manifesting, and I've been teaching manifesting for about, I guess, six years. It's part of the Ziva technique, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. But in the past three years, I've really started working on embodied manifesting. And the whole game of that is, is whatever is, is the portal. Whatever is, is your portal. So if you're using pleasure in order to manifest and you feel numb, then that numbness becomes your way in. If you are using pleasure to manifest and you feel ashamed, then that shame becomes your portal. And so part of the, part of the formula, part of what we work with is, is um, emotional alchemy. Right. So like the form is basically we we remember the future. So what is it that I want to manifest? And before you even touch the manifestation process, before you even start to build that feel good chemistry in your body, the first thing you have to do is clear the channel. Mm. And in order to clear the channel, you have to know what's what's blocking the channel. So is it unworthiness? Is it need to control? Is it lack? Is it whatever is in the way. There's some limiting belief from you having that manifestation or it would have already shown up. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we actually practice something called emotional alchemy. And what I have people do is I have them just dance, just go right into their darkness, right into the rage, right into the sadness and actually move it, express it, dance it, sound it. And then what I used to teach is that okay, we're going to dance with our darkness so that we can make space for more ecstasy. We're going to express this sorrow so that you can magnetize the thing you want to magnetize. But now I realize that even that is bypassing, right? Like even that is not seeing the God in the dark. Mm -hmm. Even that is not embracing the sacredness of the sorrow. And so now the what's, and this is, I'm learning it in real time, Mm -hmm. is that you can find the bliss from the feeling of the feeling. That actually bliss is any feeling fully felt. That you can find ecstasy in the expression of the rage. You can find God in the expression of the sorrow. And that's all the feelings want is to be fully felt. 
And then when we do that, there's there's openness. When we do that, the, the vessel becomes spacious and nature does not like a vacuum. So if you are then clear on the thing that you want to magnetize from that clear channel and then turning your body on, like starting to get into your own pleasure, which I believe that our hoo-hahs are magnetic, right? Like Eros is a magnetic force. So when you get into that magnetism, you have the clear desire and you've done the very brave alchemical work of feeling the feelings, like then the stuff just starts to show up like magic, but it's it's not magic. It's hard fucking work. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that metaphysically? Like how, in a very basic way of explaining it, how manifesting from fear or anger can impact the manifestation? How does that work? How does the vibration I manifest with actually impact the result? Mm. We're, we're all manifesting all the time. Mm -hmm. We are creating our realities moment over moment over moment. If I had walked into this room and my cat had just died, or my son was sick, like that would, you would feel that on me. I would be bringing that into the room. That would impact our conversation. It would impact the medicine that we're transmitting through people's ear holes right now. Mm -hmm. So versus if I come in here lit up about what I'm doing, so excited, that's going to impact our conversation. So we're manifesting moment over moment. So if we're in a state of fear, it's just changing our vibration when we're in our fear, we're not in our hearts. As we were just talking about earlier, stress makes you stupid, sick, and slow. Like when the amygdala kicks on, which is the fear center of the brain, there's not an, as much blood or energy in the other compartments of the brain because it all has to go to the fear center because that's survival, right? And your body's designed to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's its number one priority. We can worry about pleasure and manifestation once we know that we're safe. So if amygdala is on, all that blood energy is going to the amygdala. So we simply do not have as much creative power in our brains or bodies when we're stressed, when we're in fear, when we're afraid. So I would say that while we are manifesting all the time and you don't want to bypass the emotions, rather than staying stuck in that fear space, we need to get good at feeling our feelings, at expressing them fully because that's all they really want. The mm -hmm. feelings just want to be felt. And if we give them the microphone and let them express then they're happy to take the back seat. But if we don't let them express, then they will start to drive. They will start to run your life and you will start to magnetize more fear, more contraction. And to go into like a little bit more science of it, that the heart, um, the electromagnetic field of the heart is 700 times more powerful than the brain, right? And then you get your hoo-ha online. And by the way, hoo-ha is um, both the anatomy and the energy center around your sex organs. And everybody has a hoo-ha, regardless of your gender, regardless of male, female, trans, straight, gay, everybody has a hoo-ha. So just like when we say heart, it's not just the organ. It's the, it's the electromagnetic field and the energy center around the heart. Mm -hmm. Same with hoo-ha. So you start to get head, heart, and hoo-ha all pointed in the same direction and all in coherence with each other you start to become a real magnet for the things that you want to do, to attract. Yeah, I was recently talking to my guru about fear and we're talking about where, where it comes from, right? And the answer I came to validate your work, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, that if you unpack fear to its core, it's, to some extent it's just the fear of death, right? The fear of, of dying. That's a lot of our, the core of our fears, but it's not actual death itself. And if, in the worst case, I'm, I'm not atheist, but atheists believe you sleep, right? Worst case, you sleep. I believe you go out to bliss, right? But in the worst case, you, you sleep. I don't think that's the worst case. Oh, what's the worst case? I think that death is an extension of whatever state of consciousness you're in when you die. Okay. So the worst case, you just keep it going. Well, yeah. So if you're in like an, a horrible, depressive, anxiety-ridden loop and you're trying to end it through suicide, then you just, that that, that anxiety-ridden loop, you stay there. Yeah. 
And if you're in full acceptance and surrender, then you die and you surrender into that. If you're asleep, when you die, then sure, you stay asleep. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's um, you don't get to transcend just because you die. Yeah. Like the lessons continue. And I've, I've, I've only, this is a new theory. I mean, none of us really know. But the theory, I was just speaking to a woman who had um, attempted suicide twice. She had crossed over twice. And she was talking to a teenage boy who had also attempted suicide. And, and he said that both of them came back. Like, they you know, they saw the light. They were about to exit. And they realized that the hell that they were in, in their bodies, was going to keep perpetuating. And it was that that made them choose to go back in their bodies and do the work and to love being alive and to do whatever it took to heal in this lifetime so that they didn't have to stay in that purgatory. That was my thing I was going to follow that with that the core fear is actually losing our identity in some way, Mm. losing the ego. Um, And the way you break out of that, what I was going to say is that when we start through the meditation, when we lose our identical patterns and our way of thinking, we enter that uh, space of divine pure awareness we break those. We start breaking those things, right? Yeah. And I think when I say we're talking about fear, the only way I've I've learned to break fear is to is to break away from the identity, just mm-hmm. truly being at peace with having no identity, being being a, uh, at, at in a state of bliss with knowing that I only exist in my imagination. Mm-hmm. So how, how have you practice that? And how does your practice help people get to that state? And why is that state so important to be in? Oh, great question. So I call meditation practicing dying. Because that's what you're doing. You're transcending yeah. the left brain and, and accessing the right. Mm-hmm. You're transcending that that wave and reminding yourself that you are the ocean. Transcending small S self and accessing big S self. And so what's happening in Ziva is that we're using a tool that, that de-excites the nervous system. It gives your body rest that's five times deeper than sleep. So within 30 to 45 seconds, your body is in this deep, restful state um, and your heart rate slows, your body temperature cools. So you're actually like moving closer to corpse than you would be if you were not meditating. Um, but then also because you start to move beyond the realm of thinking, you also move beyond the realm of time. So you're in this real timeless, thoughtless space. And I just want to clarify that to me, the point of meditation is not to clear the mind. This state that I call the bliss field is a byproduct of the practice. It is not the point of the practice. And similarly, if you go into sex, like trying to orgasm right out of the gate, it will uh, negate the process and joy and presence of sex. I think the same thing happens in meditation. If you go into meditation trying to clear your mind, you rob yourself of the practice of meditation, which is really surrender and letting go. So I'm just, I'm just, I feel nervous anytime I say a thoughtless state about meditation because I don't want to proliferate what I consider to be the number one misconception around meditation is that people go in thinking they have to clear their mind. However, you do access this transcendent state, this blissfield state, no thought, no time. And in that, that's why you're practicing dying. Because when I'm in deep in meditation, I am not Emily Fletcher. I am not yeah. the founder of Ziva Meditation. I'm not an author or a mom. I just am. Yeah. And to your point, it's like if you've been practicing that every day, twice a day for decades, when you get to the ultimate transcendence of death, I think it doesn't feel as scary. I think that's one of the gifts that can happen in medicine work as well. Like, you know, any medicine ceremony is going to be its own ego death, childbirth, ego death. You know, any real, anytime nature really like knocks you down into surrender, there's an ego death that that happens. Yeah. Speaking of a meditative death, I once did like a three hour somatic breath work, I fully was, was tripping, was fully in, in a DMT state and it goes back to the topic manifestation, but I, I saw my life in like strips of time. I saw like my whole life and that made me believe, I'd love for you to unpack it because it's, it's a, something I'll bring up to with manifestation people is that 
it felt like my life was destined, that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And that made me kind of get to play. I don't doubt manifestation. I'm a big believer, but it made me realize that like, at what point is the, are the big things meant to happen? Mm-hmm. And at what point do we create them? What's that split? Mm. Well, I, this is new for me. I, I think I've been hearing this theory for decades now, but I never really got it until like last week. But I love this idea of, this is Abraham Hicks, where they say that there's like a spiritual escrow account. Um, but the way I like to think about it is there's a, it's like you have a cosmic trust fund. You have a cosmic trust fund and whatever is meant for you is already in it. All the love, all the adventures, all the opportunities, all the money, all the cars, all that house, all the sex, anything and everything you want, like it's already up there. And then the question is, how good are you willing to allow yourself to feel, to receive what is already meant for you in this spiritual trust fund or this cosmic trust fund? And, and I, I just love this idea because I think it takes the pressure off and it actually gets you into what I believe is the real game when it comes to manifestation, which is feel good, place the order. Everyone's trust fund fully think or some of empty trust funds? I think the reason why people think they have empty trust funds is that they're not feeling good. And there's a lot of people who are not feeling good. And I know that feeling good might sound simple, but I don't mean putting a happy face on top of a gaping wound, right? Like, I mean doing whatever the fuck it takes to actually feel good. And that usually means facing your trauma, cleaning up your lies, doing somatic work, healing your lineage with your parents. Like it's, it's doing whatever it takes so that you're actually vibrating at the frequency of feeling good. Now, I also get that there are big karmic lessons at play. You know, there are, we are paying the price of tens of thousands of years of not feeling our feelings, right? Like it's all, it's all action and consequence. And so we're, we're walking manifestations of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what are we going to do with the, the hand of cards that we've been dealt? And how are we going to integrate that, transmute that so that we can open ourselves to receive what I believe is, is already meant for us. And, and look, again, all of this is an approximation. None of us really, really know. But the thing I like about this particular thought experiment about this, the Cosmic Trust Fund is that it means that like me making $10 million does not keep you from making $10 million. I'm not taking that money away from you. If, like me and my best friend are both trying to attract a boyfriend. Me attracting my boyfriend does not keep her from attracting her boyfriend. I think that that's a story a lot of us get into. Well, who am I to manifest this thing? There's so many people in the world that don't even have food. They don't even have a car. They don't even have clothes. It doesn't feel selfish for me to manifest my dream home. Or my best friend is struggling to meet her partner and I don't want to I don't want to make her jealous because I'm in this amazing relationship. But if you if you really start to play with the idea that it's already to some degree not fatalistic right? But that it's available to you. And the question is, how good are you willing to allow yourself to feel so that you can receive what is already yeah. available? So it, let's say I came in with some hard chronic baggage, generational trauma to the wazoo. I got to a point where I felt like it was cleared. And I was on a slate, on a clean slate. At that point, do I have, when it's clean, do I have a say in whatever I want? Like, is there a point in our evolution where we reach a space of, of light or, or cleaning ourselves where we can say, have clean access to whatever we want? Is that, is that reality? Or like, what I mean to say is that how much say do we really have and we want? Like, can anyone at any point be like, I want this thing and manifest it? I believe that our desires are divinely inspired. Same here, yeah. 
Yeah. So, and, and here's where this requires mastery. Here's where this is nuanced is that if you ask a heroin addict what they want, they're going to be like, I would like some more heroin, please. You ask a workaholic what they would like, they're saying, I want more work, please. So in order to truly trust your desires, in order to really surrender to the divinity of the desire, I think you have to have a practice of plugging yourself into God. I think you have to have a daily visceral way of getting yourself out of the addictive longing so that you can hear the intuitive desires. For me, that's meditation. For some people, that's yoga or pleasure practice or breath work. But basically, whatever tools you're using to remind yourself that heaven is already within, right? That the kingdom of heaven is in, is within, that what you seek is in you. If you're doing that reliably, then I think you can start to really trust that your desires are divinely inspired. Otherwise, then to your point, it's like manifestation becomes like, um, I need to manifest this house and this person and this these zeros in the bank account for external validation from an internal hole. So we have to be constantly doing the work to fill the hole internally. And then you can really start to trust that nature is using your desires as an indicator of where she wants to use you to deliver your fulfillment and not where you need to go to fill yourself up. That's such a good point. I think in, in Buddhism or some new age practices, there's a lot of shame around desire. Um, yeah. And I just don't agree at all. I used to agree. And I fuck myself up, right? I desire, you know, certain sexual experiences. And then I'd be like, I can't do that. I got to say celibate or I desire fame or money. And I'd be like, I can't do that. It's, it's, it's too egoistic. But most of the problems nowadays because, are because we shame desire, right? Like if we shame our own sexual desires or shame our own need for a certain kind of love. Like how, how do you, what's the danger of that? What's the danger of actually shaming our desires? Yeah, great question. So I, so I want to just riff on this Buddhism versus Vedas thing. So according to, I mean, and I get that Buddhism's a very big thought philosophy, but in some schools of Buddhism, the, the theory is that, um, that desires lead to suffering. And if I could just transcend my desires, then I could transcend suffering. And I see this as a very monastic way of, of life, right? Like, and if you're a monk, which by the way is less than 1% of the world's population, is naturally celibate and monastic by design. They know that by the time they're seven, they want to go and chill in the caves with their gurus. They don't want to have sex with other people. They are not surrendering their desires to God. It's not their desire. Right? And I think that's a really important distinction that people do not talk about. Sure. They think that like, oh, monks are so enlightened. They're, they're just like me. They want to fuck this person and make a million dollars, but they've been able to transcend their desires and now they're holier and closer to God. Yeah. That is some like conditioning and some shame. That's a very like Western interpretation actually. So according to the Vedas, which is from Northern India, which is now geographically Pakistan, um, it's, it's very, there's very clear practices. There's householder practices and monk practices. And if you're a monk, again, like you know that by the time you're seven, they're doing a different style of meditation. So if you have desires, if you want to be in and around the, in the world, then great. You can trust that those desires are divinely inspired. So back to Buddhism. If you believe that life is suffering, and if you can transcend your desires, then you transcend suffering. According to the Vedas, life is bliss. 24 hour a day bliss that is your birthright and the only thing keeping us from experiencing that is any stress that our nervous systems have gone through so the game is really how do we eradicate the stress from the nervous system and that has been my experience that the longer i meditate the more years i have of an everyday twice a day practice my nervous system is softening and i'm able to savor what is and i believe that enthusiastic gratitude for what is is the fastest recipe for enthusiastic gratitude for what's on the way. I think that actually answers your first question, right? Of like, can you just bypass like what's now? 
And really, I think the greatest manifestors are like, oh my God, like this water, like fucking miracle. But I get to drink this water right now that you gave me out of a glass bottle that was filtered and it's in this beautiful mug that matches the couch. Like, ah, oh, miracle, right? And it's in that state of enthusiastic gratitude that you actually raise your frequency and start to genuinely, honestly feel good and then open up your receiving power to receive what's designed for you in your cosmic trust fund for sure in terms of um sexual desire specifically uh, i know you, you have certain work and uh, specialties in, in something called sex magic um so how, how can sex become magical and why has why do we have this unconscious tendency to shame our own sexuality mm. um and at what point is it ever healthy but needed to not in, indulge in our sexual tendencies like what's the line there yeah okay so many questions there okay so first i think sex already is magic like mm-hmm. just full stuff yeah. like the fact that it can create like the fact that we can just commune with another, with another person or yourself the fact that you can make love to yourself or someone else magic the fact that it could create an orgasm which by the way orgasm in french le petit mort the little death Right? So it's another way to practice dying. It's another way to transcend individuality and connect to totality. Mm. So it's like when I'm teaching meditation or teaching pleasure prayer, it's the same, really. There's similarities there. Same with medicine work. Um, but so the, the work that I do with Sacred Secret is basically helping people to understand that they can use their pleasure to pray. That if the secret to manifesting is feel good and place the order, place the order, feel good, feel good, place the order, place the order, feel good, feel good, place the order, then actually to, to not utilize the most potent neurochemical cocktail that nature has already installed inside of us, to not utilize that time where we do transcend our ego, where we do transcend our individuality, where we are connected to the universe, where our bodies and brains are flooded with dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, norepinephrine, this powerful chemical of cocktails to, to, to not utilize that opportunity to be like, wow, to open up to receptivity, to use that time to pray, it, it just feels like a way. I mean, granted, orgasm is great. Sex is great. It's great on its own. You don't have to pray every time you're using pleasure. But I want people to know that it is available, right? I want people to know that that is a path. Now, there's that. And we can talk about pleasure prayer and the science behind it, which there's a ton of, which I'd like to, but to your, the last question of why are people shaming themselves? Why do people feel so much guilt around sexuality? Is that the question? Part of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's been like tens of thousands of years of very, very active shame and conditioning to divorce us from this flavor of divinity. Because people who know, who know, how to plug themselves into God, mm-hmm. who know that they actually are God pretending to be human and who know how to turn up the dial on their own divinity, which means really just becoming more powerful, more creative, right? Like this powerful God that is a creator that was, we've created in our minds, this anthropomorphization. When we understand that that's actually us, we're very hard to control. And so there's been a lot of organizations, political and religious organizations, for tens of thousands of years who have tried to make sure that we divorce ourselves from that. And so this summer, I went on a pilgrimage. My, my best friend Leila and I went on a priestess pilgrimage to Greece, and we went to Eleusis, Crete, and Delphi, which are these sacred sites where oracles or priestesses were serving plant medicine and doing fertility rituals. So basically sex and drugs. 
And what's interesting is that specifically in Eleusis, where they were practicing the Eleusinian mysteries, um, it was 45 minutes outside of Athens. And at this time, when the Eleusinian mysteries were happening, it was like when Athens, when the Greco-Roman Empire was, like, they were ruling shit. Okay, so the, like, the people that would go and experience these sex and drug rituals, uh, Plato, Euripides, Aristotle, like the people who were birthing democracy and theater and Western civilization as we know it. And these people were going and, and they would say, you go to Eleusis to die before you die. So again, Le Petit Mort, right? Any psychedelic journey, meditation, you go there to die before you die. And they would say, you haven't really lived if you hadn't been to Eleusis. And you couldn't talk about what happened there. It was punishable by death if you shared what happened there. But what we know now is that because this man named Brian Marescu wrote an amazing book called The Immortality Key, and he spent 10 years of his life researching not only in the Vatican Library, but also the private papal library. And he's now used technology to go in and um, look at the chalices that the priestesses were serving medicine in, and they know they were serving the precursor to LST or ergot. And so it was a theory before. They were also serving different mushroom mixtures. So no one knows exactly what was happening, but we know it was some sort of like, you know, sacred sexuality, some sort of medicine rituals. So why this is so significant is not, not that it was happening. Every indigenous culture has been using plant medicine, breath work, fertility rituals, sexual sexuality since the beginning of time. What's significant about Greece is that it was these people, this civilization that was birthing Catholicism and Christianity as we know it. And then that became the colonial world order. It was that organization that then spread around the world and then took these practices from other indigenous populations and then shamed, I'm going to say us, because that's my heritage, right? Of like Western, you know, Caucasian European, shamed all of us away from these practices that have been alive inside of us since the beginning of time. Yeah, I'd love to go into the difference between someone who has sexual shame what their sexual experience is like and someone who doesn't, just so people can understand if they do have it. Because I, I had it for a long time, I didn't know. When I, once I became aware, it was like this massive realization. So how would you compare someone's sexual experience who's tied into shame versus a, a, a woman or man who's liberated in their sexual experience? Honestly, there aren't many people. Okay. Like There are not many people who I think are naturally liberated. It is so pervasive, the conditioning, the slut-shaming, the pleasure-shaming. I mean, almost every every Abrahamic religion, like... I, my neighbor was raised um, Hasidic, uh, like Orthodox. He's Hasidic. He was raised Orthodox Jewish. And he said that when he was 10, like 10 to 12, his rabbi used to bring all of the boys in a room and they would tell them that when you die, you go to heaven and God plays a VHS tape that plays every single thing you've ever done. And, and God plays it in a room with everyone, all of your teachers, all of your family members watching everything you've ever done. And that that is the thing that determines whether you get into heaven or hell. And so, of course, he's a 10-year-old boy, he's a 12-year-old boy. Like, they're coming into their puberty. They're coming into their sexual desire. They want to masturbate. Of yeah. course. Yeah. And, and even the word masturbation is a religious term, and it means to defile. Right? So nomenclature really matters. What we call things really matter. Even the word pussy, right? It's like, here's this portal of pleasure. It is the matrix point for the entirety of civilization. Every single one of us has come through one of them. 10,000 nerve endings for the express purpose of pleasure. And we have reduced it to being the biggest insult in the English language. Right? I live, thankfully, with this woman named Regina Thomashauer, aka Mama Gina, who has a New York Times bestselling book called Pussy, A Reclamation. And just living with her is its own medicine ceremony because she spent so many decades not only reclaiming her own 
sense of self and pleasure, but also helping tens of thousands of women to do the same. And so, and, and also Layla Martin, the woman I went to um, Greece with is an amazing world famous Tantra teacher has like hundreds of millions of views on YouTube. And so both of these women have done so much work, not only on themselves to heal their own abuse, to heal their own shame, but then empowering and liberating others to do the same. And I just want to name them explicitly because they've been such amazing teachers and role models to me. But to your point, I don't know many people who are just like naturally shame free when it comes to sex. I think we all are born that way. But even, oh, this is maybe weird to say, but like my son is five, right? And so he's like just starting to be like boobs. Like like he was like nursing till he was two, but he's starting to be like, like I can feel him starting to be like, oh, cool. And we're in a bath and and and, and it's interesting because it's like, he'll want to touch me. And, then, and it's like, he's my son. So obviously there's like a, a boundary there, but I'm like, I'm trying to be really neutral, right? Like I don't want to instill any of my conditioning or my shame on him. Um, but I think that even for, like as a child, if they were nursing and if someone else is like disgusted by that, like and a baby pre-verbal sees someone else like reacting negatively to that, that's an imprint that goes in, right? Or if someone's first sexual education is porn. And, and again, I think there's a time and a place for everything, but there's in most porn, there's like some dark energies Come around on. it. There's if sex trafficking, you yeah. sex traffic, there's just, it's, you can feel the frequency of it. And so if that's your first interaction with sexuality, or if the first education you have around it is like, don't do it, STDs, pregnancy, rape, abuse, like if that's all you ever hear without ever being educated on how it's one of the most healing things that we've been given, how it's one of the most beautiful gifts that God has installed inside of us, that it's a way to actually commune with your partner and the divine, that if you never learn any of the holiness of it and all you ever are taught is to be afraid of it, then that's why we're seeing so much imbalance on the planet. Because if people don't have a healthy relationship with their own sexuality, it is going to act out in abusive ways, right? Like sexual abuse is about power, not about sex. And so we have to figure out how to find that empowerment inside of ourselves, how to heal that shame for ourselves and to reclaim our desires as our own. And once we do that internal work, then we're in a much better spot to be able to be in a healthy union with someone else. So laid out now, specifically with the sex magic. So let's say you get to a place where the shame's gone, you're at peace with yourself, you're in a vibration of love. How do you actually go about the manifestation process mm-hmm. in the sexual experience? Like in details, like what does it look like? Well, I would say that even before that, like even, because again, if we're going to wait to be fully healed before we start engaging in, in utilizing sexual energy as a healing tool, mm-hmm. it's going to be a long, long wait, yep. right? And what I've found is that if you really see things as either fear or love, right? And most trauma or shame or conditioning or abuse comes from fear. That love can actually be the alchemical force that goes in and helps you to heal that thing. Um, so it it doesn't even really matter like how big the abuse or how big the shame or how big the trauma is. The question is, can we harness and summon love that is even bigger than that fear? So you can utilize that pleasure in your body to, to let go of some of that stuff, some of those stories. And, and that is a part of the beauty of Tantra. Layla Martin's an amazing teacher for that. Um, but so what I teach in Sacred Secret is, is basically my version of this, which is called pleasure prayer. So using our pleasure to pray. So the idea is step one, we want to remember the future, which is basically what do you want to manifest? Uh, so I drop people into meditation. I get them into coherence with themselves and each other. And then I invite them to feel into like, what would they love? What would I love? 
And then from there, there's usually something stopping it, some belief, some story, some something. And then we clear the channel. And we do that through something called emotional alchemy. And depending on the setting, you know, if I'm speaking on a stage or if I'm at a conference or if I'm on a retreat, will depend on what kind of alchemy we do. So I have people, usually we start with the darkness and we just go right into the rage and like express it, let it sound, let it move. We do this through music, through movement. And then that protector part is usually protecting something a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit younger, a little bit mm, softer. So then we'll get a moment to express that sacred sorrow. And then from there, we transmute it with bliss or turn on. We start to like awaken that sexual energy or what I call creation energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the, the, beauty, the beautiful thing there is that that creation energy really can be alchemical. It really can turn like shit into gold. It can turn fear into love because you're, you're accessing your own love chemistry, right? So then again, from that empty, clear channel, then we start to build the creation energy. And again, depending on the setting, I did an event here in Austin a couple of nights ago, and I was just working on the energetic plane and on the breath plane. We're building the pleasure, building the creation energy through breath and energy. Um, On my retreats, we'll actually do self-pleasuring practice. So people are pleasuring themselves in a co-ed room full of strangers, which sounds... Yeah, I work with all genders. Um, Yeah, it it feels important. It feels like part of my dharma, because to me, the soul has no gender. And when you're doing, when you're using your pleasure to pray, it's really, you're making love to your dream. You're making love to your soul. It's not about, you know, interacting with other bodies. It's not about anyone else. And, and also I think that there's so many people doing women's empowerment, women's sexuality, goddess retreats, which is amazing. And it's like, we can't just make a bunch of sex witches and like not work with the masculine. You know, I think it's important that we're, we're doing both. And because I'm really framing this as an advanced manifestation tool, and I I am not a Tantra teacher, like I am not um, like a sex expert. What I'm an expert on is feeling good and placing the order, right? Like manifestation. And this is just a really beautiful and powerful way to do that. Um, so anyway, we'll, so either through breath or through um, energy or through an actual self-pleasure practice, you start to build that energy and you start with your hoo-ha and then you let it grow up into the heart and then up into the head. And at the moment of peak pleasure or the moment of orgasm, then you revisit that dream from that state of feeling good, from that state of fulfillment, right? Talk about savoring what is. It's very hard to be in a state of lack or a state of need when you're in full orgasm. Yeah. And so it creates instant detachment. It creates instant love. It creates instant expansion in your electromagnetic field. And again, if your head, heart, and hoo-ha are all in coherence with each other and you're pointing it towards the dream, then you start to feel that dream like magnetizing through time and space. And then arguably the most important point is after pleasure prayer, I have people lay in um, Chaitanasana or Shivasana and just listen. Listen. What does your dream want you to know? What would your soul have you see? And what people report time and time again is that the dream gets bigger. They hear something new. It changes. They believe that it is more possible because they are manifesting from that outrageously exalted state and not from like, I'm late for work and I'm stressed out and I've got bills paying and I need to manifest a million dollars, but that's coming from panic or fear or lack. Mm-hmm. Is it different from men? Because in my experience, sorry, it was TMI, but if I ejaculate, mm-hmm. I'm dead. Like I'm, I'm just like exhausted and tired. Is it different for mm-hmm. men in that process? Mm-hmm. Women, you guys gain energy, you gain, you gain life force. And she, and every sexual experience I've had, woman's like enlightened. I'm there like a fucking, you know, vegetable just out. So is it different for men in that process? Hey there, I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. 
And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it can be. So thanks for naming that. And that's why I think in so many of the tantric traditions, they'll teach semen retention or ejaculation, because really what you're doing there is that you're, you're cultivating this creation energy of this life force and channeling it. So a lot of tantra is like bringing that sexual energy up into your brain. And that's what we do in the pleasure prayer practice. So I'd be interested for you to try it because it's not just about a release, right? It's not just about giving. Is I, that I, you're, tried, I just failed thousand times wait we still <laughs> trying, what? To, trying to injaculate okay it's still failing have you I'm, read I'm have you read the multi-orgasmic man no i've read the taoist one but okay not one. try the multi-orgasmic I'll, man I'll check it out. that's the one that i i have people yeah. have the most success with also check out layla's stuff layla's really masterful at teaching this um and and my partner will say adam he'll be like do, do you want to save it or spend it and this idea of, I think this is really profound. It's a simple but profound concept of you can save your creation energy or you can spend your creation energy. And for me, this has been such a liberating concept because it takes off any should or shouldn't. And I think that all genders have some like a, like a story of like completion or I, need, I owe someone something or if, if I don't come to orgasm, then I will have failed my partner. Or if I don't bring my partner to orgasm, I will have failed them. Like it's all, again, all these stories, all these conditioning. But if you have this frame of like, oh, today I want to save it. Like, oh, I have a really big meeting. Like if you're with someone in the morning and you have like a full day of podcasts, maybe you don't want to spend it. Maybe you don't want to ejaculate because you want to save that life force for yourself. So, so for, I think it's just practicing edging. It's like practicing bringing yourself right up to the borderline, like to the 9.8, but not all the way to the 10. And then, and then the trick is taking that energy and bringing it up into your heart or into your confidence center or into your vision. And that's what you get practiced at is transmuting the energy into other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as far as this, so if you were on a retreat and you were to share that with me, I would, I would say like, why don't you go to a 9.9, you know, and like, don't go all the way to ejaculation so that you have some level of awareness and, and waking state left in you so that you can hear the dream, from, but you're still yeah. feeling really great. To divide the topic, what's your take on promiscuity? What does promiscuity mean? What's your take on uh, to me? Yeah, how would you define promiscuity? Well, the the mainstream definition would be just uh, an over too many sexual partners. But who's who's who says too many? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. But for me, it would be too many unconscious partners. That's my definition. Mm. Um, but I don't know what's your, what's your take on it. Yeah, so I think anything can be a drug. You can kill yourself with water. Yeah. Right? Like you can you can drink too much water and die. So it, it's both like the devil's in the dose, but it's actually like what is the intention in using the thing? I have used THC in a, in a way before that I actually think is helpful for me. Like if I have an addiction, I'm not addicted to THC. If I have an addiction, it's work. And so sometimes I will use THC, like a little bit of it to get me into this creative and then I'll start painting or I'll, or I'll write poetry or I'll sing. And so for me, THC has been a really helpful tool to break me from my addiction, which is work. Some people are addicted to sex, right? And they're using this external thing to fill an internal void. Some people are addicted to food and they might make love with their partner as a way to feel nourished instead of going to their food addiction. So I do not think you can have a judgment on what is promiscuous or what is not. I think the real question is what is someone's intention in engaging in those acts and how do they feel on the other side? Like I am personally like not monogamous. I am personally like I have found a lot of um beautiful um 
like sacred teachings and learnings for myself and play party experiences. Like some of the most profound spiritual teachings I've had have been from play party experiences. But I'm very fortunate to have a community where I feel so safe and it's female led and it's everyone there is really good at communicating boundaries and desires. And there's such love and intimacy that happens and, and a real level of respect and mastery that's happening. Now, I've also been around spaces where that does not feel like the way, you know, I mean, there's conscious porn, you know, there's porn that's made by women that are like, you know, wanting to infuse it with spirit. And there's erotic poetry made by my friends who are PhD sex therapists. So it's not about the act ever. It's about like, what is the infusion inside of it? What's the intention behind it? Were you ever monogamous? Hmm? Did, did, did you ever have a monogamous relationship? Yeah. I have. So I'm um, just curious, what what led to you deciding to be non-monogamous? I don't know if it's a decision. Okay. Like I don't like just like I don't know that people decide to be gay or straight. You know, you just are you just are that. I think some people are. Um, and it's interesting. I did an interview yesterday with Christine Hassler, who's amazing, 20 year coach, and she said she's like, yeah, no one's monogamous. And and she she and I sort of disagree on this. Like she was basically, yeah, no one's naturally monogamous. She's like, but it's a choice. You like choose to fully commit to a partner. And she is very much of the opinion of like, that's where the work, it's like in the deep monogamy and in the deep, like dancing with each other's inner child, that that's where the spiritual work happens. And I would agree. Like if you're using non-monogamy or having multiple partners as a way to get a, away from doing that deep inner child work and really like being in the ring with your partner, then again, that's... um that's a numbing or an avoiding, which is different for me because I'm in that, like I'm in that with my partner. Like we have that level of commitment. We have that level of doing the work, that level of safety, you know, couples therapy and like loving each other hard. And in dancing with some flavors of openness, it's been a really huge spiritual practice for us. And and I am not preaching one way or the other. Like I, I would never ever tell anyone what to do in that regard just as much as I would never suggest that someone be like with a certain gender or not. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, I think the question is how do we teach people how to listen to what their truth is yeah. and how to really have the tools to be honest with themselves? Because how many people are like going into some cookie cutter contract? I mean, the fact that like we have one marriage contract like if you and I were going to business together, we wouldn't just like go online and be like, oh, let's get our business contract. Here's this stock contract. Like that's absurd. And to think that like something as intimate and nuanced as marriage or a relationship could have like a stock contract is absurd to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've thought about it or I've never been non-monogamous, but I think about a lot of the work I've, I've been through is, is overcoming what my ego faced most re- resistance with, right? Like resisting a certain reality that I can't accept. That to me is the work. Like how fast can I get into accordance with what is, what's accept, what's, how can I accept reality? One of the things I would have the hardest time accepting is if my partner slept with someone, right? That's the most resistance I could possibly face in the human experience. Literally. I think even like, like um, I've experienced microdoses of it and it's been sickening to me. And it's like, I, I think often like that, this could be probably the most enriching thing for my spiritual experience. However, yeah. I'm not brave enough to do it. But, what but tell me why, like, why is that? Why is it so terrifying? Like what's underneath that fear? I have serious abandonment issues. Okay. So yeah. you think if, if, she were, if you had a partner and they were to sleep with someone else that you would be abandoned? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, yeah. Consciously, I wouldn't, 
I'd know what's going on, but my body would be like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, yeah. the trick is like, yeah, okay, great. Intellectually, I can know this all day long. This person loves me. She's committed to me. I support her in this. And you have to talk to the body, right? You have to love that animal part of your body and know that there might be a territorial part of you or there might be a little kid inside of you that's afraid of being abandoned. And I would argue that if, I mean, and again, I'm not advocating for it, but I'm just saying that like, if you were to engage in it, to, to name those parts and to be like, oh, there's a piece of me that just wants to like dominate you. Or there's a piece of me that just wants you to be mine. Like, and that yeah. just, a- that animal part, that like silverback gorilla. And there's a four-year-old part of me that's like terrified that you're going to leave me. And if you can give those pieces the microphone and love them and allow them to be loved by your partner, that's where the healing can happen. Even if they, even if you don't engage in it. Right. But I think like the fact that you have this much self-awareness and the fact that you're like, oh, this is, this could be medicine for me. You don't even have to, like, have to actually do it, but it might be powerful to deinstall that button for yourself. How do you dance with that in your own situation? Uh, if one of you sleep with someone else, like, mm-hmm. how do you dance with that? Take me from when it just started and you were just going through it and how it's progressed to where you are now. Mm-hmm. What's that journey been like? So I met my partner, Adam, three weeks after I had gotten out of a divorce. So I'd asked for a divorce and I met Adam three weeks later Mm. and I have been with my husband for 10 years. So, and that was a monogamous situation. I mean, it's complicated, but it was like a don't ask, don't tell, which I do not recommend. A lot of marriages. I don't advocate for that. Like, I think if you're going to engage in non-monogamy, you better fucking ask and you better fucking tell. Um, Like that, I will, I will advocate for that just because I think otherwise you're missing the spiritual juice of it. Right? If you believe that our relationships are here to teach us our lessons, then if you're not asking and not telling, then you're missing the, the growth mm-hmm. opportunities. Um, so anyway, so there was a point where, well, Adam and I were long distance, right? I was in New York and he was in Austin. And, and it was many years before I was like through the full divorce and living on my own and, and all of that. So it was a unique situation to start. And I didn't really take the time that like everyone would tell you ever to take. Of like, take a year, kind of, take it's, six it's months. Bullshit. You think? I think it's bullshit. Like yeah, the, the advice to like take your time. Why? Uh, I don't. I don't think it's universal, right? Like, um, when my mother passed away, my dad soon after was, was dating, and for people in my family, it was like it was hard to deal with, or or, or hard for me. It was like, man, the, the dude, life just passed away. It's his only way of being able to feel somewhat safe in his in his body and feel somewhat sense of love and enjoyment of life like who am I to, to, to ever judge them who am I to ever mm. that's his own reality his own experience and that's why mm. I think we have this some people just need that some people haven't done enough, enough work or enough trauma release to be in a place where they can't have someone by their side or, or something so for me it's like you know who am I, who am I to judge I, I don't mm. believe in the universal law that you need to take a year to find to take space it's like whatever's destined will happen in some way like you were, we're going to meet him then no matter what to some extent so it's like yeah no. Yeah, it does feel like that. Like, the, I mean, I won't bore you with the story. It's a great story. But like the way that we met was so outrageously cosmic. I mean, I was doing the like Abraham Hicks, Joe Dispenza, like meeting my person. I was doing the manifestation that morning. And then I had done Bufo the day before. So I did like, you know, arguably like the most like ego dissolutions, dissolving into love. Like forget about seeing the face of God. I was like, oh, right. I am the face of God. And then the next day I was under this beautiful, so I said I wasn't going to bore you with the story, but here it is. I was I'm under this. Excited. I'm bored. It's good. <laughs> I was under this beautiful, the like, grandfather tree on the sacred Qigong ground. And I was meditating and I was talking to my unborn daughter. I think I have this daughter who wants to come through. And I was like, I love you. I trust you. You tell me when, you tell me who, you tell me where. 
And I walked up into this dome and I got on this meditation bed and somebody put their hands on my feet and I have a full Kundalini awakening. I take off the eye mask. I'm like, who are you? What is this? And he's like, this is Opus. It's a sound bed. And I was like, I have to create for this. And he's like, yeah, I invented it. And then that night we went under this tree as a full moon and we fell in love. And his co-founders like prayed and they're like, I pray they're falling in love. And that was three years ago. And so it was like a deep, hard, cosmic assignment that like we have work to do together on the planet. And that has been true, like both in the world and also with each other. And I feel so outrageously safe with him, like safe to let this stuff come up. And I also in the last three years became a sex witch. You know, like I, like all of this is new for me, like the sacred sexuality, using sexual energy to manifest, like being in these communities, like the, like I'm, I'm having a massive sexual awakening at the same time that he and I are in this committed relationship. And so finally this summer, I was like, I need a minute. Like I need a minute to just like drive my own car. Like I gotta be in the world as this, like with this new vehicle. Like I'm not driving the same car I was for 43 years. And so we made a decision to have like a, like a consciously separate summer. And what was fascinating is that his desire, his, he said, if you don't want any boundaries, I don't want any contact because he was one, he knew how intense it would be for him to be able to feel that he's very psychic. He's very energetically tuned in and sensitive. And so his assumption was that if we were not in contact, that it wouldn't be as painful, but that was not true. Like he could feel everything that was happening anyway, even though we weren't in contact. And like, it brought up a lot for both of us. Like it took a lot of processing to get to that point of taking the summer and it took a lot of processing on the other side. And, and we're still in it. Like we're still processing. I mean, so that's really the trade-off of like, if you're going to be in any sort of openness, like I think the thing that most people say is like, it's just too much processing. Like you're just always sort of like navigating through something. And so I get that it's not for everyone. And I don't even know if that'll always be for me because I honestly don't know if the trade-off is worth it. Like just yeah. the time investment that it takes to be able to navigate those waters because it is so triggering. Um, How do you go about it? Let's say you pause me if I'm being too asking too much, but um, let's say you, you, you sleep with someone. How mm-hmm. would you communicate that? So our, well, the way we went into the summer was um, actually my expectation going into the summer is that we would not communicate about it, that it, whatever happened happened. And that if someone wanted to know, like we would tell the like like the broad strokes, we wouldn't hide, but that we wouldn't necessarily like share all the details. What Adam has invented is this amazing thing he calls sacred theater. So where if something were to happen with either of us, that like within like days, within like 48 to 72 hours, that we would perform sacred theater for the other one. And so that we would like be in a safe space, we would be in coherence with each other and we would act out the thing for the person. So we would like, you know, let's say like, I was on a tea date with someone, I would be like, and then we, and then he ordered me tea and we were, I could feel his foot under the table. And I would like, like just, I would act it out so that Adam would get to be a part of that experience and, and feel part of it. To be honest, this is, this is an edge for me, like, because I, I have my own slut shaming and my own guilt and my own like past with it, that to really like be in my full, like, it was so hot. It was so like to really celebrate the amazingness of it feels edgy for me because I, I'm a people pleaser and I'm recovering codependent and I don't want to hurt his feelings. And yet I think that that is the medicine for me to like trust him enough and trust my desires enough 
that I can actually, that that's what he's asking for is for me to truly celebrate what happened with him so that he can feel like he was a part of the experience and integrate it versus it feeling like something that creates separation. Now, look, I, I think this is very advanced swimming and I don't know many people or couples who would be able to. Especially men, I, I, men who could do that. So props to him. No, he's, he is a miracle. So, like this man, like I, from the moment I met him, I'm like. like the male ego is the last thing the male ego wants to do. For him to do that, I can just, from that story, I can just say that's that's some serious work right there. No, he, yeah. I, from the moment I met him, I'm like, please teach men how to love. Please teach <laughs> men how to love. Like, he is so honoring of the divine feminine. Like, he worships the goddess. Like, I am the lucky recipient of his worship of the divine feminine. And I am, like, the the vessel for that. And this was a big ego death for him. Like, you know, it was fucking hard because he had to lay at the altar the thing that he loves the most. And, like, be willing to surrender it. You know, there was a million stories of I might leave and blah, blah, blah. And and so we've had to really heal that. But I will say that we are stronger now than we've ever been. Like we are in deeper love than we've ever been. And when he gave me that freedom, all it did was make me want to lean in. Like it just made me want to fall even deeper into him because like the feminine is wild. Feminine is wild. We've conditioned her into thinking that she's submissive. She's not. She's wild. And so these like guardrails that we put around the feminine, like that's what, that's why I think we have this like fear that it will leave. But if you actually allow her to be wild, then, then it's like, oh, like there's a, a reverence and a gratitude and a respect and an honoring of like the amount of confidence that it takes to allow that wildness to be wild. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've, I've experienced relationships where I was owning what I've done in the past, where I would, I would in prison, not like slavery, but I'd, I'd control, right? Yeah. Don't wear that. You're wearing a suggested top. Don't wear that. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to the suit. Don't talk to him. That was me when, you know, when I was 19, 20. Yeah. It was a serious band. And she's not, I was, you know, I thought I was a macho, tough guy. And then that felt so awful. And she'd react so badly. I almost lost her so many times that I learned the real macho thing was to just let go. Just yeah. to give give her freedom. Yeah. Um, most men don't understand that. Most modern relationships are just, are just male control. And it's like now it's this new movement online I'm seeing where it's like men are being encouraged. It's more masculine to be that way. To like not let your woman wear certain clothes or restrict her more and more. But it's, just, it's not the way. The more manly thing to do for me is is to give freedom, right? If you unpack unconditional love, it's just freedom. Mm. It's, it's giving someone freedom to, to be them, right? Yeah. So how has it been experiencing that compared to what was the opposite of that I'm assuming in the past? Mm. I mean, it wasn't the opposite. My my ex-husband is amazing. And my, like, he's an amazing father. He's an amazing, okay. um, he was an amazing partner. It's truly like, amazing. Just, just not my person. Yeah. And, um, and part of that divorce for me was me learning how to trust myself and doing the bravest thing I had ever done. Um, which was like hurting the person who would help me the most and, and choosing myself. And so I think that's why particularly this summer was so important for me because I felt like I needed to choose myself in this moment. And then in Adam's bravery of that, it like made me love him even more and made me want to fall in even deeper. And I also think like a model that I would love for more people to play with is the idea of um, what we call it as expansive sacred union. It's like our union is primary and it is sacred and it is special. 
and it's it's expansive. Like it can expand when it wants to, it can contract when it wants to. It's like after the summer, I was not in full integrity. Like I did things that I am not proud of and I I did damage. I I betrayed him and our relationship. And so we have been in deep repair of that. And so we immediately closed the container. And so there was a time for it to close and to heal and to repair. And then we will see like when and how we open again. And so it's it's I think that what I would love for people to experiment to see if it's true for them is this idea that it is like everything else in life evolving and changing. And there are times for perhaps expansiveness and times for, for more contraction and both are beautiful. But if we just think it's like one thing and it's fixed forever, like that's where I think people get into trouble. Cause like, you're not the same person at 20 as you are at 70. And if you're, if you're wanting to have a baby, if you're in the chapter of life where you're procreating, like maybe then you close it down. If you're in your sixties and like, you know, it's just different, different chapters of life. Life is long. Mm-hmm. How can we as men properly love the divine feminine? Mm. Mm. Great question. The feminine is receptive. The feminine is surrendered. The feminine is creative. The feminine is soft. It is about pleasure and feeling good, but also like the queen archetype, like really like she's, she's leading, but she's leading from a place of intuition and service of like, oh, this is what nature wants. And so the, the model that Adam always says that I love is that he is like, he is like holding the banks of the river, that he's using his strength. He's using his masculine to like hold the banks so that I can be in my wild feminine. That's one way. I also, um, I also think that this freedom piece is big and it's, it's freedom without betraying your own boundaries, right? Like right now it feels like you're real. I love your self-awareness where you're like, oh, there's a piece of me that's afraid I'm going to be abandoned, right? So it's like the fact that you know that you could bring that into a conversation and then your partner can love that, right? And nurture that part of you so that that part, that little four-year-old boy is not running the show. Cause like nobody wants a four-year-old having a temper tantrum running any adult's lives, Right. And so it's um, like loving each other's inner little children, I think is a really beautiful way. When you say wild, what do you mean? Hmm. I think intuitive, which oftentimes the intuition doesn't make sense. Right. Like if you really, I mean, think about the biggest like moments of clarity in your life or like the, like your biggest successes likely came out of some idea that didn't make any sense. You know, like Steve Jobs birthed the iPhone when he was on LSD. Like that's not linear thinking. You know, Einstein would go and take naps and he would go into these altered states when he would birth these crazy ideas. So those are examples of the feminine. It's not like A plus B, then C, then D. It's not straight penile thinking, right? It's circular, maybe not logical. So it's, it's, um, what was the question? What is wild? Yeah, when you said uh, a man has to let the woman be in her wild feminine, what, mm. does, that, what does that wild mean? Mm, mm-hmm. I think it's it's listening. Like if the woman is in touch with her feminine, she's listening to however nature wants to use her as a vessel. And sometimes that might not make linear logical sense. Um, like I just interviewed my friend Mel Wells today and she teaches divine, um, like a divine embodiment. And she's like an intimacy coach for women. And she just took her work days down to two days a week. She's a mom and she wants to spend more time with her kid. 
And like on paper, that doesn't make any sense. You want to grow your business. You can't work two days a week. And yet she's making more money than she's ever made before. And so it's like, that to me is an, an example of that is like, she's living her life the way that she wants to based on her desires, like based on her hoo-ha, like she wants to spend more time with her baby. She's embodying that and doing it from a place of softness and ease and joy versus like, um, uh, should like I need to follow this path to get to this place? Mm-hmm. Can the wild be done consciously? Why well, I'm asking that is there's this expectation in the, in the conscious uh, lingo that men have to be you know this this rock or stone where the water bounces off of and the wild nature bounces off off of. But in that is there a is there a more elegant way to do the wild or is there a like or is the wild is wild? What, what I mean is that is there a more conscious way of doing it where you're not just like let's say the your partner is is the stone. You're just like verbally attacking. Or mm. is it? You got, do you want to get yeah, yeah, like, yeah. How do you? Is it ever? Is there ever a conscious way to to be wild as a winner? Or is it just pure channeling? Well, I think what you sound what you as mentioned sounds like abuse. Like someone like uh, like taking their unprocessed stuff and putting it on someone else. But nowadays, it's like you know, even ask some conscious man, they be like, "Woman, they're just crazy." You know, it's just like expectation of like. They'll just be crazy. It doesn't matter what comes out of their mouth. Like it's just them. Mm-hmm. That's what's like. That's what some men believe. Yeah, that I don't agree with. Where it's like they're just gonna say whatever and do whatever, and it doesn't matter. It's all the same. Yeah. What I would argue is that we're all only ever commenting on our own state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So if you say all women are crazy, you're really just commenting yeah, on course. your own state of consciousness. Yeah. And to me, the game is like regardless of gender, can I tap into my own internal masculine and my own internal feminine and know. Um, like which of them I want to be leading at that time. And can I allow them to be in balance with each other inside of me to create that polarity inside of me so that I can then create a relationship where we have this healthy dance of masculine and feminine. I never heard internal polarity. Can you explain that? Yeah. So for example, for myself right now, I I have a therapist and she's like, you need to use your very well-developed masculine to hold space for your wild feminine. Like you don't, She's a good therapist. She's yeah. great. Never like, heard of an American therapist like that. She's, she's not American. She's like um, <laughs> she's like Eastern European, very, very intellectual, like Dom, spiritual Dom. And um, because I've been, you know, my mom made all the money. She was the breadwinner and she was the primary parent. And so that's my model of like the woman just does it all. And like, you're lucky if, if dad shows up. The kind of like that's the model. So that's the thing I'm working to reprogram for myself. So my assignment, my spiritual assignment is... Like, can I learn to receive? Can I learn to hold space for my own feelings? Can I learn to soften? Can I trust my own intuition? Like, this is my phase where I'm in right now and healing my father wound, healing, which we all have. Um, and so, the, and, and interesting, yesterday, Christine Hassler also said, there's a difference between the healthy masculine and a trauma response. And, and I'm talking about for myself right now. So my... She said the healthy masculine is acting in response to the feminine, meaning like you get, and again, this is all genders. You get an idea, you get a hit of intuition, that's the feminine, and then the masculine executes on that. That feels good. That's like, oh, I'm on spiritual assignment. I had the idea to write the book and I'm writing the book. And yeah, I might be getting up at four in the morning, but it feels generative because this is my mission. I'm, I'm aligned. Yeah. That's healthy masculine, which is different then what I sometimes will go into, which is um, trauma response, vigilance, control. I have to do this, but I'm doing it from a place of like fear or anxiety. Yeah. yeah. So I think that even that delineation is really important. And just like, and you'll know the difference based on how it feels. Right. So, so again, it's like, 
Uh, someone else framed it as the masculine might be the head, but the feminine is the neck. Like the feminine is like telling the masculine like where to look and where to go. And and when we get out of balance in ourselves, and certainly we see it on the planet, right? That it's it's and and it's not about having. I mean, yes, we should have more female leaders for sure. But if we have more female leaders who are leading from their masculine, then same shit, same shit, yeah. just different gender. Mm-hmm. So it's like we all have to find this polarity inside of ourselves. Yeah. In terms of relationship polarity, do you believe? Because there's some schools of thought where it's like the man has to always be in his masculine and the feminine has to be in her feminine. I'm not really with that. And there's the other side where it's like both balance coming from that place. Where do you stand? Is it is it sometimes this is sometimes this? That's where I stand. Where some days it can be in that polarity, some days or even some days it's it's the opposite. Like how, how have you dealt with that in your own relationship? Yeah, I think that one. It's it's. Okay. I think the question is, are you attracting someone who has that level of dexterity and who has both developed? so that they can be in the dance with you. So the days that you need to soften and surrender, they can execute. And the days that you're really stoked about executing, they can like go with your flow, right? But that it really can be that dance. If both people are in their masculine all the time, then it's like, well, then it becomes an execution competition. And if both people are in their feminine, then it's like, oh, like who's, we might be really getting a lot of downloads and we'll be getting a lot of insight, but like who's, who's creating the like structure here? So I think it's about a dance. And I think that can also be so fun sexually. Like this is where I think, or I'm so in love with the sacred secret work that I'm doing because I feel like once you get people in touch with their energy bodies and once people start to see that like I could penetrate you in your heart, you could penetrate me in my mind, that that it's not about the genitalia per se. If both, if all genders get really dexterous at giving and receiving energetically, I think innately a lot of misogyny and a lot of homophobia and then transphobia starts to fall away because we start to see all of these roles inside of us, right? Like I, I don't know if this is TMI for your show. You can always cut no, it out if you want. free speech, say whatever you want. <laughs> But like my friends will all also comment on like, I have this like massive energy cock and it's this, and I mean, I have like dreams of like a a stadium, like 80,000 people in a stadium climaxing at the same time, holding a, a dream for the species. And so there, there is this like energetic penetration thing that happens in the room. And, and I think that if, if more people were allowed themselves to play with that, people who don't have penises to like tap into their energy cocks and vice versa, people who do not have pussies to find their energetic pussy, it's like you can you can have a different level of respect and a different level of reverence for someone who is not like you. And and I think, and then also know how to interact with that. Like, I, I love this story from my first retreat. Again, it's co-ed. So I had this man, he's like mid-40s, cisgendered, straight, white, male, firefighter, has never done any tantra work before, has never done any of this stuff. We do an hour-long breathwork session. It is like ayahuasca without the puking. It is like MDMA without the come down. And I'm having people tap into these energetic elements. And afterwards, he sits up and he's like, well, I found my energetic pussy and I liked it. And then I felt what it was like to conceive and carry my unborn daughter. And I was like... Ladies and gentlemen, this is what the crumbling of the patriarchy looks like. It's not about destroying anything. It's about giving people a visceral experience of the profundity of the feminine, the profundity of that receptivity. And then you are not going to abuse something that you can have that much reverence for. Well, mind blown. I want to shift towards different topics. Well, <laughs> you don't want to talk about energy cocks anymore? <laughs> no, I do. I, do. I, I have one question I wanted to ask you. I, didn't, I wanted to cover um, which is, I think we're going through, uh, uh, I am fascinated by that. Just, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm curious about this. <laughs> I think we're at a point in time in, in, 
in our reality where we're going through some serious collective shit. Something's happening. Um, and whenever I meet powerful people like you, I'm always curious as to what your perception is of what's going on. So what do you think is happening in our collective consciousness right now? So there's a lot more energy coming onto the planet right now. Like just, you could talk about that in a spiritual way, but actually just like more photons, more like more electricity coming to the planet. And so it is going to amplify, right? Like you give a five-year-old some Coke, I mean, at Coca-Cola, hopefully it's not cocaine. <laughs> You're going to amplify that five-year-old, right? Um, so if you give a planet that is imbalanced um, a lot more energy, those imbalances are going to get highlighted. Now, I like to believe that things are being highlighted for deletion. I like to think that the th- I'm choosing to believe that some of the, what we're seeing are is the death rattle. You know, that final, like, ugh of the patriarchy, that final death rattle of these imbalances. Um, I am going to Egypt in a few weeks with Robert Edward Grant, and he is assembling this group of light workers and people he's calling like the... Um, Avengers. Mm-hmm. Light, light Avengers. Yeah, the Avengers. <laughs> and, and specifically to go to Egypt to get those codes that the Egyptians were working with when they were building the pyramids and arguably dealing with extraterrestrial beings. And so... The answer is like, I don't know. No one really knows, but it's, it feels like collectively we're in a bit of a medicine ceremony and we're, we're getting into the purge. We're getting into like what needs to be highlighted for deletion and those things are going to get loud. And I think that the systems that have been built on unsustainable philosophies, greed, extortion, um, a lack of symbiosis that those things are going to start to fall away. I mean, the banking system is starting um, and that's going to lead to some instability. Like there's going to be, I think perhaps many years of, of real instability when, when these structures that have given us the illusion of control and the illusion of stability as they start to fall away. So again, I think that, you know, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And we get to choose how we want to move through this. And I think that it will be up to people. I'm sure people listening to your podcast are are waking up or are awakened or have their own way to plug into collective consciousness and creative intelligence. And so my invitation would be to really put our attention on where we want to go, to really actively and with a discipline and with a ferocity, put your attention on the world that you want to birth. And the thing that I'm interested in is like, I think if we could do that fast enough, we could have a revolution that does not require a revolt. Like, I think we all agree that some revolution is basically necessary. Like, Like the way that humanity is going, it's very limited our time on earth. And look, maybe there's another planet that's better. Like, who knows what's on the other side of human extinction? I don't. I can't say what's good or bad. Yeah. But where we're heading right now is human extinction. For sure. And, yeah. and so if we're going to follow the math, if we're going to follow the data, that's where we're going. What Aubrey says, he, um, you know, last year at Arcadia, there was a group of speakers who were staying in the house. And he was like, yeah, but the statisticians have not accounted for magic. And at this point, we don't need magic. <laughs> At this point, we're going to need some non-linear feminine solutions because if we follow the linear timelines and trajectories, it's already written. Yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting time. I do feel this rising of the divine feminine, this rising of the goddess energy on the planet, this rising of a need to find um, win-win-win solutions that we have to transcend this zero-sum game that we've been playing for too long. Yeah. And we have to get back into symbiosis with the planet. And until we do that, Shit's just going to keep getting louder. 
Jung has this concept where he attributes the devil to all the spiritual awakenings in the sense that when you're present with what you don't desire, when you're present with the evil or the or the anger or the need to dominate and hate the other person when they really just ourselves, the more we we sit with that feeling and, and feel how it's distasteful, the more we wake into the light, right? That, that sitting with those I know it's tough to do this right now because there's horrifying things happening, but nothing to do all the time, but take time to sit with it in your body and be like, what, what in me is reflecting this? And when you sit with that truly and you, you understand your body, how it feels, you're not going to want to be in it. And the more all of us do that and start feeling in our, in our bodies, the sensation of the, the darkness, we can then not only want to go to the light, but, but believe it, that it's more powerful in the, the dark in a way. Yeah, and be the light. And yeah. it goes back to bliss is any feeling fully felt. You can sit in that pain, sit mm-hmm. in that horror, sit in that upset, sit in the ways that you have wanted to murder someone else or wanted to kill something about someone else or wanted to control something about someone else and sit with that and then integrate it, love it into integration, right? By creating more love in your body which is oxytocin, which comes from pleasure, right? We can start to integrate those tools. And there's, there's a beautiful quote I said on my last retreat where it was, and this is, it's a long quote, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's like, there is a revolution happening and you're not going to see it on the news, but p- more people are waking up and waking up and we are going to shift the consciousness so much to where people will throw a war and no one will come. That that it would just seem so obvious that I will want to vibrate in this frequency of heaven on earth, then why would I even entertain anything other than that? And that is, again, I don't, none of us know, but I am choosing to believe that that is where we are heading mm-hmm. because I know that anyone with a microphone putting that reality out there, then we can all collectively start to say like, well, what reality do I want to birth? I'm going to give a hilarious example of this, but um, Reese Witherspoon, right? Like she, like Elle Woods, like blonde Elle Woods, Reese Witherspoon has one of the most successful, most profitable production companies in Hollywood, like a billion dollar book club and production company. And she did not go into Hollywood and destroy anything. She didn't go in trying to destroy the old boys club. She's like, I'm going to make my own. I'm going to create the thing that I want to see. And I'm going to put women in their 40s and 50s on screen. I'm going to tell stories about people who aren't white. I'm going to highlight stories of authors that come from different populations. And she did this, like just creating the thing that she wanted to see. She didn't worry about destroying the old. So I think people who are meditating, people who are waking up, we want to lead with creation. We want to put our attention on the things that we want to birth. We want to use our pleasure to pray. Mm-hmm. It's, we often call it a spiritual war, but I think that language has to shift. Correct. Because the, the war, there's no good guys in a war. Yeah, you're not going to tear down the kingdom using the king's tools. Yep. Yeah, well, powerful place to end. Thank you for sharing all these, these codes and also just being so vulnerable about, your, vulnerable about your own experience. It's great to see. I think that's what's missing in this space. A lot of people talking about where they're coming up. Not short, but what, what they're going through a feeling yeah the, we, the we, news we, is it never stops yeah. <laughs> we, we, we give off this image in this space that we got it all but we're all we're all in this human humanness together but where can people learn more about your meditation and things you do yeah so the best place is zivameditation.com and there's a great there's a free masterclass if people go to zivameditation.com slash podcast there's a, a beautiful masterclass that goes into the neuroscience of why ziva is different from other styles of meditation why it's different than apps and how it actually makes you a self-sufficient meditator and then as far as this new embodied manifesting work, the sacred secret work, that's just uh, zivameditation.com slash secret. And then I'm on social media at Ziva Meditation. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. 
Thank you for listening.